All right, we'll go ahead and um, get started. Um, I am Amy Laster. I am the Vice President of Science and Awards at the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Um, I've been with the foundation for like 13 years now, so I've attended a lot of vision. So I'm really excited that we're back and doing these sessions in person. Um, well, again, this is the gene and genetic technology session. It'll last about an hour, 10 minutes. Um, and we're gonna reserve a lot of time for questions from the audience. Um, as we have been doing throughout this conference, these sessions are audio recorded. So if you're using an assisted listening device, please turn to channel three. Thank you. And don't forget to silence your cell phones. We're going to um, pull the door closed in, in, in just a bit. Joining us on this panel are Dr. Alina Dimitriscu, uh, Dr. Ellen O'Neill, and Dr. Peter Quinn. Uh, before I begin, as we also have been reminding you to be social, so please follow Visions, um, the conversation on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and use hashtag Visions2022. So now I'll turn the floor over to our speakers. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Um, my name is Alina Dmitrescu, and I'm an associate professor of pediatric ophthalmology and inherited eye disorders at the University of Iowa. Can you hear me? Louder. Okay. <clears throat> my clinical practice covers mostly children with any eye disorders, uh, with a focus on genetic eye disorders. And um, today I will briefly review some general principles about the diagnosis of inherited eye disorders and how it relates with genetic therapies. Um, my patients, majority of them are referred to me by their families or by their pediatrician or by other physicians because they're noticed to have abnormal vision. And um, some of them have a family history of known eye disorders, um, but majority don't. We do an eye exam, but sometimes the exam does not tell us where the problem is in the eye and even if there is a problem at all. So we need to perform additional testing like electrophysiology, ERG, or VEP that you might heard of to evaluate the function of the retina and other testing like OCTs or uh, photos to evaluate the structure of the retina. But really, ultimately, what that tells us is where in the eye the problem might be. And it helps us um, directing the diagnosis towards a certain problem. <laughs> Ultimately, to be able to, to diagnose specifically a disease, we need to perform a genetic testing. And, and that will give us the answer of what exactly disease is and where in the eye is happening. There are many genes associated with inherited eye disorders. As of 2019, the National Eye Institute published a list, and there were more than 500 different genes reported to cause inherited eye disorders. And honestly, we can test all of them if we want to, but the diagnosis is more precise and likely more accurate at least in my opinion, if the genetic diagnosis and the clinical diagnosis match. And then when we get the reports from the genetic testing, we need to make sure we establish the inheritance for recessive genes. Each gene comes from a parent. For dominant genes, we can establish where they come from. And having a correct and a complete and a timely diagnosis is important at many levels. Um, patients and families, like you know, want to know what disease they have. Um, it gives us an idea of the prognosis, what's going to happen most likely with vision, with color vision, with the visual field. Um, it tells us what's the risk for a family to have another affected child. It tells us what's the risk for the patient to have an affected offspring. But really, ultimately, 
we cannot have a genetic treatment without having a genetic diagnosis. All the treatments that are targeted for gene replacement or gene manipulation therapy are either gene-specific or sometimes even mutation-specific. So if we don't know these details, we'll never have a treatment for those diseases. And we're going to talk more about that today. Um, if we know where the gene is located in the retina and we know what function has, if it's making a protein or an enzyme or a structure, it tells us what kind of treatment is applicable for that disease. And as of today, there are more than 70 active clinical trials uh, for inherited eye disorders, and about 15 of them are for gene replacement therapies. Um, there are other modalities of treatment, like we can replace the product of the gene, protein replacement therapy or enzyme replacement therapy, um, but we are mostly going to talk today about genes and gene therapies. And the gene therapies are delivered to the retina through a surgical procedure, corvitrectomy, or by an injection in the back of the eye, and, and we use a virus vector to carry that gene to the retina. Um, so with all this in mind, the, the number and the distribution of the healthy retinal cells that are available to receive the gene therapy and the function of the rest of the retina, um, as well as the size of the gene that we are trying to deliver, are important factors for the success of gene therapy. If the disease is advanced and there are a very small number of retinal cells that are able to receive that therapy, um, or if the rest of the retina is damaged and it's not functional, um, the gene therapy is not a good option for treatment. If the gene is too large and exceeds the capacity of the virus vector can carry, um, then it cannot be delivered to the retina in one fragment, in, in one single piece. Um, so, um, with that being said, we have a great experience with the success of Luxterna for gene replacement therapy. Um, that's just for one disease, so we're looking forward for more of those in the future, and we'll hear about some of the research and the trials next. Good morning, everyone. Um, so my name's Pete, and I'm from Columbia University, and um, today I'm going to talk about mostly gene editing and kind of different types of gene editing. So these are kind of newer technologies that are se separate from gene augmentation. Um, so as you know, your DNA is a blueprint to make you who you are, and we kind of inherit two sets of three billion letters from each of our parents. Uh, and the sections of your DNA called genes, and these make RNA, and which in turn make protein. And protein is very important for uh, the structure function and regulation of, of our body. Uh, so just to summarize, DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein, and protein or groups of proteins are very, very important for the function of our body. So the most common kind of um, changes in DNA are these kind of sing single letter swaps, so such as a, a C to a T, G, or A. And there's actually 12 possible letter swaps, and most of these single letter swaps or uh, point mutations are harmless. Um, and we collect billions of them actually every day. However, occasionally a point mutation can disrupt an important function or um, cause a cell to misbehave in a harmful way. So now if this harmful mutation occurs very early in development or you, you inherited it from your parents, uh, um, this, this would cause this dysfunction and you'd be one of the many people worldwide with a genetic disease. So there's actually several different types of therapeutic intervention um, that can be implemented, both at the DNA level and also at the RNA level. And DNA therapies, like, like you, you, you've heard, gene augmentation is one of the, the ones that are best known in the eye field via Luxterna. There's also gene editing and optogenetics, which you've also heard around, uh, about um, over this weekend. Uh, and there's also RNA therapies, like splice modulation or gene silencing or newer types of RNA uh, therapy, like RNA editing. Um, and what I want you to kind of get away from this is that there's now really a lot of different types of therapeutic options, and we're kind of taking a step back and seeing like which one is the best for a given mutation or gene, and this takes more development. 
Um, so as I said, gene, gene augmentation really showed what's possible. So this is where a cell that's uh, mutated, for, uh, has mutated DNA is supplemented with a healthy copy of that DNA uh, to hopefully restore function. Uh, and this has worked with Luxterna, uh, which is a, a gene augmentation therapy for patients with uh, biological mutations in RP65. Um, however, gene augmentation is, as I said, not suitable for every situation. So for example, there's mutations that lead to um, proteins that are toxic, and then we'd have where the wild type um, protein cannot facilitate or correct for this, this mutated protein. Um, also, some genes are very large, and as, as I said, they fall outside the packaging capacity of typical viral vectors, so it's harder to deliver these. Or for some genes, like the one I work on, CROMS1, there's multiple isoforms. Uh, and actually, there's multiple isoforms, but they're also expressed in multiple cell, different cell types. Uh, and this kind of makes developing um, a gene augmentation quite challenging, um, uh, and it takes a bit of more uh, preclinical development. So what are the alternative approaches? So gene editing offers um, a great alternative. And there's kind of three main flavors that I, I want to explain today. So there's these um, nucleases, which kind of act like these molecular scissors that cut your DNA. There's these base editors, which are kind of like a pencil, and they can rewrite one letter to another letter, in particularly in a particular place in your genome. And then there's these prime editors, which have kind of been likened to word processors with this search and replace function um, that can swap one DNA segment for another. So all three of these methodologies use uh, Cas protein. So uh, Cas, we've uh, commandeered from uh, bacteria, uh, and it's a, a defense mechanism that they use. Um, and what we can do is we can program this CAS to uh, search through to a specific place in our DNA and perform a function. Um, so let's start with these molecular scissors, these nucleases. So we can program them to come to a specific place in your, your DNA. And we can do what's called a double strand break. Um, and then this can be repaired in two different ways. Uh, so the first way is something called non-homologous enjoining, which is quite imprecise, and it can lead to things called insertions and deletions, where we basically insert or um, delete random letters, and this is not very precise. Um, however, um, this can have some uses. So for instance, edit 101, so the, 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 the um, SEB290 um, therapy that's currently in clinical trials uses this um, to remove uh, an intronic mutation uh, very successfully. Uh, so, again, depending on the type of mutation you have, you, you want to use a particular type of technology. And the second repair mechanism um, to, to repair these double strand breaks is called homology-directed repair. Uh, and this is where you provide a repair template uh, that can install the type of mutation you want to correct. So it can swap this letter from the wrong letter to the right letter. So these cast nucleases that cause these double strand breaks, they do this really efficiently. Uh, however, these repair this with HDR is very uh, uh, low efficiency, um, meaning that actually most of what happens is this imprecise pathway, uh, which can introduce these um, undesirable effects. Um, and additionally, because these double strand breaks, um, of course, we, we move these guides to target to, to a specific place, but there can, of course, be areas in your genome that might be kind of similar, and you can have something called off-targeting, where this CAS is accidentally taken to somewhere else and causes um, a deleterious action, so it cuts in the wrong place. Um, so now to this base editing. So this base editing is this, this pencil that can swap one uh, letter from an, for another, and it also uses this CAS uh, to, to move it through its uh, genome. However, this CAS it doesn't perform double strand breaks anymore. It either performs a single cut or no cuts at all. Um, and this is very important because it provides a, a clear increase in safety profile for this type of technology, so it's much safer and causes less off-targeting. Um, and there's two, mites, two main types of base editors, um, but in short, they're both a fusion of this CAS to an enzyme, and this enzyme can perform this single letter swap. Um, so the CAS is taken, uh, takes this enzyme to a specific place in your, 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 your DNA where you want to perform your change, and this enzyme has a particular window in which it can perform its function. Um, and within that, that, that specific window, it can perform these letter swaps, and it does this very efficiently. Um, however, of course, like most technologies, there's some flaws, so it can't can't make all of these letter swaps that are possible. So I said that there's 12 possible letter swaps. You can only do a small subset of these. Um, and further, for instance, if that, uh, that enzyme that's taken to a specific place in your DNA 
uh, if there's more than, um, if the letter you're trying to change, if there's multiple of the same letter in that specific window, this, they all can be changed, and this introduces bystander effects. So these are other changes that you don't want to happen. Um, however, if base editing is used for the right mutation, where uh, in this uh, editing window the enzyme works, there aren't other letters besides the one that you want to change, then this is a very specific technology that can be is very powerful, uh, and I think it will be you know, something that will be used uh, in clinical trials in, in some years. Now to the last and newest kind of gene technology, this is prime editing. So this is this word processor-like technology where you can search and replace uh, different letters in, uh, of uh, DNA segments. Um, and prime editing again works with this CAS that can take it to different places in your genome. Um, and also you, is, uh, an enzyme is fused to this called reverse transcriptase, which instead of uh, DNA being turned into RNA, it turns RNA into DNA. Uh, and what else is different about prime editing is that guide RNA that takes that Cas protein to where it should be in your ge uh, genome has an extension sequence, so it has some extra base pairs on it. Uh, and what's important about that is that the extension sequence acts as a repair template that the reverse transcriptase can use to add in uh, the different base pairs that you want, so to correct the specific mutation that you want. But what's nice is that then the, 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 the guide both takes the cast to the right place, but also your repair template to the right place, so increases the efficiency. And again, this uh, prime editing uses a cast that only nicks one strand, so again, it has an increased safety profile. Um, so just an overview of then what prime editing is. So um, it doesn't cause these double strand breaks that are very harmful, like the homology-directed repair. Uh, it's more efficient than this homology-directed pair. Uh, unlike the base editing, it can perform all the different types of letter swaps. However, um, if base editing doesn't cause bystander effects, so where there's multiple letters of the same as the one you want to change, uh, then base editing is more efficient. Um, but prime editing is more flexible, so it can perform changes more widely through your genome than base editing. Um, and of course, you kind of probably want to know if we're starting to use these, and, and actually they've both shown efficacy in, in um, retinal degeneration mouse models, um, which is very promising. Um, and yeah, just to, sum, to, to kind of end, um, we're now developing an array of different technologies, both RNA and DNA therapeutics. Um, and we really want to develop these based on the specific mutation or gene. Um, so for instance, for CROMS1, um, the most prevalent mutation for CROMS1 can't be treated with base editing, but then it's maybe more uh, applicable for um, prime editing or RNA editing, another new uh, therapy. Or for instance, for that SEB290 mutation I was talking about, we both now have a DNA therapy and an RNA therapy available for it that's in clinical trials, um, and which one is the best one? And we kind of need to take a step back and think about this. Um, so that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm Erin O'Neill. I am a clinician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I also work in clinical development at Opus Genetics, um, where we are developing therapies for LCA and specifically looking at rare diseases that affect the pediatric population. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, patient benefit of gene therapy, who's most likely to benefit, and a bit about the... Um, the patient experience as you go through therapy. So when I think about which patients are most likely to benefit, um, the, the high level is they obviously have to carry the target gene. They have to have a clinical presentation that suggests they'll benefit. Um, age is an important consideration that I'll discuss. They have to be able to tolerate the delivery of the therapy. So um, as Dr. D mentioned, usually these are delivered via subretinal injection that involves a trip to the operating room with a removal of the gel that fills the eye and an injection below the retina. Occasionally, it's delivered via an intravitreal injection in the office, um, which is generally well tolerated in adults, but becomes a factor if you're considering pediatric patients. And finally, they should be able to demonstrate the effect of therapy. So to go into each of those a little bit, um, Dr. D gave a great summary already, but um, patients obviously have to carry the target gene. These are all gene-specific, and in some cases, um, as Pete mentioned, mutation-specific therapies. So genetic testing of a potentially eligible patient, specifically in an autosomal recessive disease, will often involve not only testing the patient, but also family members, such as parents or siblings, to confirm that even in the case where someone carries two different variants in the gene in question, one is on each copy of the DNA. If both of the variants are on the same piece of the DNA, that raises more questions as to why the patient is presenting with an IRD. Perhaps they have a yet unidentified gene that's causing their presentation. So that's a very important 
uh, first step in feeling confident that someone is likely to benefit from therapy. Next, I mentioned that they should have a clinical presentation suggesting that they would benefit. In the broadest terms, we think of this as meaning that they have enough retinal tissue, and by this we often mean photoreceptors, remaining to have potential benefit. So gene therapy cannot restore lost tissue, um, and typically a patient needs to have enough healthy enough tissue to tolerate the subretinal injection, which does involve putting material underneath the retina, and this isn't necessarily the most accurate way to describe it, but you can think of it as kind of putting the retina on stretch a little bit. And so if those cells are super unhealthy and then you're sort of lifting them up to put a therapy underneath it, um, that can cause some disruption in and of itself. So we really look for patients who have um, retained photoreceptors that might benefit from the therapy. Now how much exactly needs to remain is an open question. Um, in the preclinical studies for LCA5, for example, um, the mice who demonstrated the most benefit had at least 30% of the natural complement of photoreceptors prior to therapy. Um, because this disease in particular is a form of LCA that affects very young patients, it raises the question of how early do we need to treat LCA5 patients um, to benefit, which also remains an open question. In the published study that I mentioned, um, the investigators also looked at the patients and compared them to the mice and found that some of the patients in their cohort who even in their 20s and 30s still had that 30% of photoreceptors left, suggesting that patients even in their third decade of life might benefit from therapy. Um, and the question of how early to treat is really a critical one and one that comes up in my practice a lot. Um, so for example, for Luxturna, which most of us are familiar with at this point, um, there is an open question as to whether treating earlier in the pediatric population is better. There was some suggestion in the preclinical studies that maybe earlier treatment led to better outcomes than later treatment in adulthood, and that hasn't really been um, clearly demonstrated in the post-approval literature. There's a little bit of, I think, discussion going on still about which patients are most likely to benefit based on age. So I tend to not think of age cutoffs, but rather a tissue cutoff when I'm evaluating somebody. Um, and to get more into the nuance of the question of at what age to treat, um, as I mentioned, typically patients have to go to the operating room for therapy. In the case of a really young child, you wouldn't want to necessarily take them to the operating room on repeated times because repeated episodes of anesthesia aren't considered beneficial for a young child. So if you aren't able to evaluate them in the clinic after therapy, you'd have to bring them back to the operating room just to examine them. And we really like to avoid that when possible. We also know that the retina itself continues to develop for at least the first two to three years of age. And so typically the youngest participants in our, cl in our clinical trials for gene therapy are four years of age. Um, that can create a bit of confusion among families as Luxturna, for example, is officially approved in ages greater than one. Um, but in our practice at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we typically don't treat patients younger than three and really never younger than two, even in the cases of severe disease presentation. Um, but we do want to keep pushing that envelope to treating patients at a young age. We want to give the best opportunity for visual development to prevent amblyopia as best we can, um, and uh, at the same time avoiding subjecting pediatric patients to unnecessary stress and exams under anesthesia. Um, and so one of the most pressing issues to address um, which patients are most likely to benefit, especially as I think about this with sort of my pediatric lens on, is to address the efficacy outcomes landscape in our field. And that really has to be something that's done in conjunction with the researchers, the clinicians, regulators, and the industry sponsors. Um, so the impact of gene therapy is really not as straightforward as best corrected visual acuity. And my favorite description of the impact of Luxterna treatment on a patient's vision comes from an observation that her mother made to us. And she wrote, two days ago, she was filling her water cup from the fridge door, and she noticed that she could actually see the water line in the glass as it filled, as opposed to sticking her finger in the glass, which is what she's always done to feel the, where the water is. And that really struck me because it's such a small moment in this girl's life that's improved by the therapy. But then how do we as clinicians measure that? And how do we translate that to the regulating agencies who evaluate necessarily for safety and efficacy? So there's a very high standard set by the FDA um, that improvement in visual function and functional vision have to be demonstrated during clinical trials. So to them, acceptable clinically meaningful endpoints include changes in visual acuity, changes in visual field sensitivity, changes in a full field retinal sensitivity, or an improvement on a, a mobility course. But beyond that, an ideal outcome measure would be well-described in affected patients and validated in those patients relatively easy for the, for the participant to perform repeatedly with minimal errors, 
but sensitive to changes over time and due to treatment. And finally, they should, of course, be clinically meaningful to patients and ideally capture those small moments of daily living and translate them in a way that we can convey. Um, so I also want to emphasize that an ideal outcome measure could be um, performed by a relatively young patient because we do strive to treat patients before widespread retinal degeneration. Um, so our team at Opus is studying treatments for LCA, um, and so we want to really evaluate also outcome measures and how can we push the envelope on outcome measures to show evidence in pediatric patients. Um, so I do have some notes about different outcome measures, which we can talk about. Um, I'll briefly sort of go over them. Some of these are things that the patients in the room will have participated in. Um, so when we think about full field sensitivity, usually that's done via FST testing. Um, excuse me. A patient will um, place their chin in a Gansfeld unit, which is the unit that's done for ERGs that most of you are probably familiar with. And then the machine will display a full field stimulus of varying luminance levels and at varying wavelengths. And this provides a lot of information not only on the retinal sensitivity, but importantly can help us determine which photoreceptors, the rods or the cones, are actually mediating that response, which can give very valuable information as to the effective treatment. Um, and we have success in our practice performing FST in patients as young as a pre-kindergarten pre age, so around four. Uh, Microperimetry allows measuring retinal sensitivity at a specific locus and even involves tracking during the testing of the patient's fundus so that you can tell exactly where the response is coming from in the patient's um, retina, and that can be used on an overlay of the OCT structure that she mentioned, the, the imaging that we do, to show the actual structural and functional relationship um, to demonstrate which structural areas of the retina are responding to therapy um, and how much improvement you get based on where the, the treatment is delivered. Um, that's something that is difficult for a pediatric patient to participate in because it does require a very prolonged attention span, um, but has been used as an outcome measure in clinical trials, including for XLRP. Um, and then the MLMT, I'll briefly touch upon, that's the mobility course that was used in Luxturna. Um, about a four-year-old patient is able to complete these mobility courses at varying luminance levels, and the goal is to um, demonstrate an improvement in the speed and accuracy of completing the obstacle course at a lower luminance level post-treatment. And there are other iterations of these types of courses under development, including virtual reality options, um, which may be able to provide more functionality to really target different types of disease presentation, so perhaps diseases that really affect the central vision rather than the peripheral vision, um, and maybe asking patients to complete different types of tasks that would be more meaningful for them. And then um, just two more quick points. I'd be remiss in discussing the importance of these outcome measures without touching upon the importance of continued progress on natural history studies. Um, so that's really important in defining the clinically significant impact of therapy. And the hope is that through patient participation in these natural history studies that we can very well define the natural course of disease. And so we're able to detect deviations from that expected natural history that might be a clinically meaningful outcome that could otherwise be lost in the noise. So if anyone has the opportunity opportunity to participate in a natural history study, I, I highly encourage you. And then the final point is that um, just to, to drive home how difficult these endpoint measures are, we have to be very mindful of how we discuss endpoints and which endpoints we describe in our protocols. So recently, Pete had mentioned a therapy for ProQR, and they presented their results of a phase three of an antisense oligonucleotide therapy for CEP290. And the study did not meet the primary endpoint of improved visual function in treated eyes as compared to sham eyes, so a completely different group of patients who didn't receive treatment. But when the investigators reanalyzed their data comparing the treated eyes to the untreated fellow eye, so the other eye of the same patient, there was a meaningful improvement because this disease is so heterogeneous, meaning different between each patient. Comparing one patient to another is not as meaningful as comparing a treated eye of a single person to their other. Um, and so if the endpoint had just ever so slightly been tweaked, then it's possible that uh, the outcome of that trial could have been very different. Um, and I think I'll pause there so that we have lots of time for questions. So if you have a question, just raise your hand and Mike Runner will bring a mic to you. Because we're recording, we just ask that you wait for a microphone before asking your question. Uh, hey, my name is Suresh. Just trying to know, I mean, how do you know how much percentage of photoreceptor cells are preserved for a specific gene? I mean, um, it varies for each gene, right? 
Yeah, I think it would be really hard to take the data that I mentioned for LCA5 and sort of extrapolate that to any other gene. It really involves doing those gene-specific animal studies and then comparing them to the cohorts of patients that we have. And it's, while I said that the LCA5 mice who had at least 30% of their photoreceptors left did the best, that may or may not be true for other diseases. So um, I wanted to give that data point as an example of the value of the preclinical studies and helping to determine who will benefit most in the clinic, but I wouldn't necessarily take those numbers and put them on any of the other disease forms. And is there anything which we can do to preserve the photoreceptor cells? That's a great question. I know you talked about this yesterday. Well, um, there are potentially some things that, that we can do. Um, you know, if the disease progresses, the photoreceptors will eventually die. So we cannot absolutely stop every single disease. However, at least for some forms of retinitis pigmentosa, there are some um, treatments, and, and there is a trial started with some oral medicine that potentially helps preserving some of the cones and to keep them longer to function. It doesn't treat the disease, it just stops progression, hopefully to a certain level, and that might be an intermediate option until the treatments are available. And, and um, in a different session, sorry, um, they were talking about optogenetics, doing pretty much the same thing with preserving the cones as the rods are dying and, and to keep them longer uh, until a definitive treatment is it's available. On the optogenetics, uh, in, to extrapolate from that, it, are there other potential gene therapies outside of optogenetics that might progress into more gene agnostic treatments? Um, it's one question, and then the other is just what is that clinical trial for the oral treatment, if you wouldn't mind? So, uh, just to start this discussion, and, and you might add to it about gene agnostic treatments. Um, you know, stem cells therapies are gene agnostic, hopefully, um, that, that's where they're going right now. Um, and there might be um, maybe some of these treatments that are including, you know, gene editing that could be very specific but also could be very broad if, if we figure out the right tools. Um, those will be the one, and the, the trial is, um, it's called NAC attack, N-A-C attack, um, and it's an oral medicine that has been used in humans for other indications, and there is a, um, some preliminary data suggestive that um, it has a beneficial effect for retina in patients with retinitis pigmentosa. Yeah, and there's also a lot of um, preclinical work, pre work on um, metabolomic type therapies. Um, so this is spearheaded by someone like Connie Sebko or, or, or Dr. Stephen Sang, um, where, where they're trying to give a pan-therapy approach. Um, and most of these are, of course, in very early development. So they're testing a series of, of mice, for instance, that have um, um, deficits from different genes uh, and seeing the, the widespread applicability of these uh, therapies. And I think there's also um, OcuGene 400, which is... Um, I think in clinical trials, it was recruiting, um, where for two indications, so for adoption and for one other, where they're kind of trying this more pan-therapeutic approach um, for subsets of RP. I do have a autosomal dominant form of inheritance of RP. And my question is, if I ever get submitted to uh, any therapy, for gene therapy, uh, I guess I do have one bad gene and one good gene. Uh, would the therapy consist on deleting the gene, silencing the gene, or editing the gene? Yeah, this is a, a good question, and this is um, kind of what I was making in my talk. There's lots of therapeutic options now uh, that can address this question. So, for instance, um, for rhodopsin, there's this ablate-replace approach where you would... Um, 
disrupt the unhealthy uh, allele of your, your gene and then you'd um, supplement further with uh, increased levels of, of, uh, of a healthy version. But there's also um, RNA therapies that can perform gene silencing of uh, the specific allele of your, of your, um, that's mutated and then the healthy copy that's still there can still function. So I think these are things that we kind of need to work out further in preclinical work and kind of do this direct comparison about which one might be better for a specific mutation. Uh, and this, is, this takes some development, unfortunately. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, in reference to the oral medication you said that was good with RP as a stop measure, uh, stopping the further progression of the disease, do you have specific mutations that that is working with or? So first of all, I want to say this is a clinical trial, right? That's we hope and, and the preliminary data suggest that that's, that's what's going to do. So clinical trials are by definition trials. We, we hope that's what's going to happen and that's why I encourage patients to consider it. Now to answer your question, no, it's not for a specific gene or for a specific mutation or for a specific type of RP, any RP. So you have many different forms in the clinical trial. Correct. That's excellent to hear. How far along are we in that trial? It's about to start. It's about to start. Okay. So like a year to I, two years before we start looking for? For results, yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Because RP, it's a very slow progressive disease, and we're not going to see a difference in a couple of months. No, the one that I'm talking about is talking, it's happening in the US. Now, the one in Australia, it's a version of the same. The, the medicine is the same medicine, but the one in Australia is enhanced in some way that it's more bioavailable and you have to take less of it. Um, it's a common it? It's not necessarily a vitamin, it's an anti-inflammatory agent that is used in patients with cystic fibrosis for their lung disease and in patients with Tylenol toxicity for, for their liver problem. It seemed to me there was something, some type of antioxidant pill that you could take as a daily whatever. If, if we're talking about the same thing, uh -huh. the reason, not exactly over the counter, but there is a version of this medicine in the pharmacy. It's not a pill, it's a liquid. And the, the one that will be administered in the clinical trial is made in a pill. And it's, it's standardized and measured and, you know, made in a way that is measurable. Um, so I personally do not recommend taking it over the counter or buying it from the Internet. You never know what you're getting. Oh, never from the Internet. No, I get that. Um, no Amazon. No. <laughs> um, but I'm pretty sure some people will do it. Okay. Thank you. I think some people do take that over the counter. And also... Um, Probably you guys were talking about the, the same thing, but there was some work done a while ago by um, my mentor at University of Pennsylvania looking at lutein, which is an antioxidant, which is, might have been what you were thinking of, um, which is used in um, age-related macular degeneration, but they've also done some studies on the effect of lutein in IRDs and whether that can be used to kind of supplement and preserve. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that has been done and there is no trial about that right now. So AREDS is a combination of lutein and a number of other vitamins, not just lutein, but you can buy lutein individually as well. And some people, like you said, there's no trial for it, but some people are taking it. Now, what I would say to, with that is that Lutein is a form of vitamin A, right? And, and if your disease, if your specific mutation affects the vitamin A cycle, there is a possibility of actually 
you know, causing harm by taking too much lutein. So I, I would not recommend just trying it. At least talk with your doctor before you do it. Hi, uh, Peter. You gave a nice overview of the editing, next-gen platforms for gene editing, and also made an important point about um, the groundwork that still needs to be carried out uh, to understand the clinical potential of these approaches. Um, maybe uh, just quickly, could you comment on prime editing specifically? You know, how much do we know, have we learned about the efficiency and variability of the approach across different genetic backgrounds? And you know, the DNA repair uh, enzyme aspect of cells. And in, in general, what needs to be learned uh, more about prime editing to get it ready uh, for a clinical translation? Okay, yeah, happy to answer that question. Um, so I guess prime editing hasn't really been done in most many post-mitotic cells yet. So actually most of the work we've been doing it is in hex cells. So, you know, th these are great. They, they allow us to install and correct um, several different types of mutations so we kind of can screen for the best combination of these of different components. So I, I talked about this um, guide RNA that has this extension sequence. And that extension sequence, um, there's different parts to it uh, that we need to optimize to get the most highest level of editing efficiency we can. Uh, so these hex cells are great for kind of screening this and finding the best one. But actually what we don't know yet is the best one that we screen in this cell type, will it be the same in a different cell type? Um, so in my own experience in cell culture in the, in, the, in the lab, so we have hex cells and we have iPS cells that we have from patients. Uh, and I've been able to correct uh, with prime editing both hex cells that I've made for a particular mutation and these um, uh, iPS patient cells. And now what I'm working on, which is kind of the development part, is doing this post-mitotic editing um, in um, retinal organoids, so for, uh, mini retinas that we've made from patients. Uh, and I do this specifically for CROMS1 and PRPH2. Um, I can say that prime editing uh, has worked in vivo in, uh, in mice model of RP65, uh, and they showed that that was enough um, to lead to rescue effect. So I think we still need to kind of understand the repair mechanisms. Uh, we don't really understand this very well. David Liu has been working a lot on mismatch repair, as, as many other people have, to kind of fool the system. So there's some new versions of prime editing where we uh, install uh, silent mutations that can then kind of trick um, this mismatch repair mechanism so that we can increase editing efficiency further. Um, and like I said, uh, well, uh, and the other therapy-based editing that's also been done um, uh, in, 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 a, in a mouse model of RP65, and what's interesting is they tried two different types of base editing. They tried the CB and the AB um, for different mutations, but they found um, um, that they had different repair mechanisms. So one worked better than the other. And this is really interesting because the only way we'd work this out is that if we tested this in photoreceptors and found out, oh great, this one works better than this one in that particular specific scenario. Um, and that's why I keep talking about we need to take a step back with some of the technologies and just really compare them. I just had a quick question. So um, back to the oral medication we were talking about. Nacuity was in Australia. What is the one you were speaking on that's ha going to happen in the US? It's called NAC attack. Okay, thank you. NAC and attack. Where is it going to take place? There are, as far as I know, at least six or seven centers in the US. I know we at University of Iowa are one of them, but there are multiple others. Um, if they're not already, I think they're already on clinicaltrial.gov. Uh, if not, they will be there soon. Are you talking about in acetylcysteine? Yes. Because I do hear the NAC is not too readily absorbable, and it's, most of it is excreted through your body, urine. Um, I don't know, I was just thinking, maybe taking the glutathione, which is a precursor, would be better because the NAC is really not well absorbed in the body. And, and that's kind of a little bit of the difference between these two trials. The one in Australia, again, the NAC has a little modification to make it more bioavailable. Now, to answer your question, 
I don't know because there was no preliminary data on that and I, I'm pretty certain somebody's looking at it. <laughs> Hi, I just wanted to um, go back to Lutein for a minute. Um, you said that there are no trials right now, but there has been research done. I know Paul Bernstein was doing research on Lutein and how it was absorbed in the body. Just wondering, do you have any information as to what conclusions have been drawn so far about the efficacy of Lutein? So I haven't looked at the paper in a while, admittedly. Um, but if you want to give me your contact information, I can send you the paper um, that Dr. Alamon and I think Dr. Duncan was also on it, um, looking at the effect of lutein on the macular pigment in particular. So I'd be more than happy to forward that to you. This is just a follow-up. I also saw Dr. Bernstein about 12 years ago, and he measured my lutein levels, and he said it was for our research study. Um, I have Stargardt's. I don't know if it was specific to that. I know that Dr. Bernstein studied that in particular. Do you know of that study? Or I, is it the same study that he mentioned? The, the one study I know, and I, I think we're talking about the same, uh, was with uh, lutein supplementation in RP, uh, not in Stargardt disease. And Honestly, because the ABCA4 gene is one of the vitamin A cycle genes that I was talking about, um, again, I, I'm not aware of any trial of using lutein for Stargard. Um, I would not recommend it, it personally. It wasn't supplemented. He just measured my oh, lutein just, levels. Just measured. Yeah, and he said it was for a research study. But again, this was about 12 years ago I when see. I saw him in Salt Lake. So I wasn't sure if you were aware of that study. No, I, I am not. But again, okay. we can look it up. <laughs> yeah, for sure we can. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ray. I'm 30 years old. I live here in Orlando, Florida. Um, I have a RP. I have RP, but a very slow-progressing form. Uh, my question to you is, um, I've been taking lutein and vitamin A every day for uh, several years now, and I also heard you mention that there may be a danger in taking too much lutein. Um, would a, red, a regular blood panel show if I was taking too much vitamin A or too much lutein? Well, um Yes, you know, we can measure vitamin A levels uh, and, and lutein levels. What I was really saying is that for certain genetic mutations in particular, you know, parts of the visual cycle, that might be a problem. Now, again, I, I assume the supplementation is done with your doctor's guidance and, and so, because vitamin A just in, in itself it can accumulate in the body, it can accumulate in the liver, can have toxicity, one can overdose in it, can have teratogenic effects. So if we take a ton of it, if we take more than our body can handle, it could be dangerous. That's why I never suggest anyone to just take it, buy it and take it. And, and that's true with a lot of supplements. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely, thank you. Hello, I'm Fabiola from Santiago de Chile. My son has a RP1. We already have the genetic testing. And um, he is, uh, we came from Chile. We went to London to see the Dr. Michaelides, and then we missed the flight. I just arrived here. I'm pretty happy to be here. I'm excited as well. Well, he's uh, having retina complex for four months. And uh, do you know retina complex? It has lutein and zeaxanthin, mm. and I think vitamin A as well is uh, pres prescripted by his uh, doctor, retina doctor, Marcela Perez in Chile. But uh, he doesn't feel very well the last uh, month. He has some problems with the liver, I think. And uh, I stopped to give him the, the vitamins. We don't know if, if that's a problem, but we took this trip to London because of the um, Dr. Michaelides, 
and we're going back to Chile and see what happened with the levels of the vitamins. So I just wanted to say that Retina Complex, we bought that in Holland. They sent us to Chile directly. He's 11. Again, I, I'm trying to look it up right now to see if we can see what it is, but I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. Okay. okay, thank you. Any other questions? Okay. One more. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, there actually is access to information. What is it? Clinicaltrials.gov. Yes. How would I look that up? As far as. So, um, this is the name of the website, mm -hmm. clinicaltrial.gov, and, and there are some search functions okay. by disease, by medication, by various age, um, active trials. There are, you know, a, a number of, of ways to search. Okay, thank you. Do our speakers have any... Anything additional you want to add? I know you're you're looking. Any other questions? Give her a moment. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining this session. If you have questions or want to follow up, um, you can come up to the front and, and see our speakers. So I want to thank Alina and Erin and Pete for, for their time today. So please join me in thanking them. There are box lunches that will be served um, out in front of the exhibit hall at 1145.